So hello everybody, uh, thank you for joining us here and online. Uh, my name is Scott Linsicum and I'm the Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute here. Um, this hour's panel is called Resisting the Protectionist Tide. Um, as the title implies, uh, free trade is uh, under attack today. Um, greater attack, in my opinion, than it has been in decades, especially, but not only, and certainly not only in the United States. Uh, despite continued public support for foreign trade and globalization generally, even during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, a bipartisan cadre of politicians, pundits, and wonks is increasingly skeptical of the long-standing consensus in favor of trade liberalization. The U.S. government, in particular, has downplayed open markets in favor of national security, economic resilience, and the people and communities left behind by our modern and globalized world. An official's nationalist rhetoric has been backed by action, such as the Biden administration's reluctance to remove former President Trump's tariffs on steel, aluminum, and imports from China, uh, the Biden administration's refusal to pursue new trade agreements, and its championing of several new economic nationalist industrial policy initiatives on things like semiconductors and environmental goods. Now these moves, along with pandemic-related supply chain snarls, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, creeping protectionism abroad and in other countries, and the continued impotence of the World Trade Organization have signaled to many that an era of deglobalization is upon us. In my view, as I've written a lot, and some of you probably know, uh, I think the current skepticism of free trade and globalization remains very misguided, even as its justifications and the global economy have, have changed, often dramatically. In particular, academic literature and recent experience continue to provide strong economic, geopolitical, and yes, moral support for free trade in the multilateral trading system. There's also little concrete sign that the world, so far at least, is really deglobalizing through trade and supply chains, as well as the rules under which they operate. Now, those things are changing, but there are a lot of other ways globalization has actually increased in the last few years. A digital trade, in particular, has exploded. Supply chains, they're changing, yes. They're more shifting than they are coming home, though there is certainly some of that, too. We're really more re-globalizing than de-globalizing. So I think the death of globalization is exaggerated, but trade policy, again, particularly in the United States, but not only here, remains in a rough spot, a very rough spot right now. And to discuss why and how we escape that spot, I'm really happy to be joined by three top thinkers on the subject. And uh, I'll introduce them in the order in which they'll speak today. First, Adam Posen at the far end is president of the Peterson Institute for National Economics. He's contributed to research and public policy regarding monetary and fiscal policies in the G20, the challenges of European integration since the adoption of Euro, Brexit, China, US economic relations, and developing new approaches to financial recovery and stability. Next is Susan Hausman, vice president and director of research at the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research. 
She chairs and co-directs several programs on labor and economics, too many to list right now, but inc this includes two Sloan Foundation-funded research projects on measurement challenges arising from the growth of, growth of globalization. I mention these because those projects are where much of her uh, presentation today comes from. Last but certainly not least is Arvind Panagaria, professor of economics and Indian political economy at Columbia University. Arvind has offered numerous books on international economics, including one of my recent favorites, Free Trade and Prosperity, How Openness Helps Developing Countries Go Richer and Combat, combat Poverty. So each panelist will speak for five minutes and then we'll have a couple minutes of discussion and then we'll open it up to your questions and to the questions of those online. Um, so with that out of the way, I'll now turn it over to Adam. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. And thanks to Ryan Bourne who organized this conference, which is filled with distinguished speakers, including my two colleagues on my right, um, and to Cato for hosting this. I think uh, under the title of this conference, there are almost no places where left and right have come together as much as they have on anti-trade. Um, and I think in the U.S. as perniciously as anywhere. Um, and the idea that is out there and has been taken over the mindset of the Biden administration is the idea that workers got a terrible deal uh, from the opening of China into world economy, globalization more broadly, and therefore we need a completely different so-called worker-centric trade policy, which consists of protectionism, industrial policy, subsidies to large corporations, restrictions on things like the Jones Act, and so on. Um, I'm going to spend my remaining four and a half minutes talking about a particular angle on this rather than rehashing all the evidence-based uh, facts about trade that Scott and I and others at Cato and Peterson Institute and many other places have gone through through the years. What I particularly want to point out is a perversion of the sense of manufacturing decline in this country that is being used as the leading political force to promote anti-trade views. And um, this, I wrote about this in Foreign Affairs in an article a little while ago called The, the Cost, The Price of Nostalgia. And we've done some additional work at the Peterson Institute on our website, which Scott, with his amazing Twitter following, has been kind enough to promote at times. But th the main point is, um, I'm sure I'm going to piss off both left and right, so I apologize. Um, that the fetish for manufacturing is part of the general fetish for keeping white males of low education um, outside the cities in the powerful positions they're in in the US. And um, that is really what's going on here. Because when you look at the costs of manufacturing, and Susan Hausman and her co-authors have done a lot, not of manufacturing, of trade, and job displacement and community. Susan Hausman and her co-authors have done a lot of work on this, and I'm sure she'll have a different view than I do. But when I look at the so-called costs of the China shock or the costs of the decline in manufacturing, I always think compared to what? For decades, there was enormous displacement of African-Americans in this economy. Every time there was a recession, 
African-American unemployment rates shot up much faster and higher than white unemployment rates. Single women were methodically excluded from the workforce, and especially if they became parents, or ghettoed in particular sets of jobs throughout the economy well through the 70s into the 80s. Um, displacements on large scales would happen when technology or trade broke through, like all the secretaries who got replaced by personal computers and other forms of office animation. Excuse me, not animation, automation, excuse me. Um, and these kinds of churn, as the economists put it, never were decried. They never got political attention. They never got much notice. But when it started being the white male manufacturing people in the so-called heartland, which by definition was not urban, um, then suddenly this was a crisis. And when you look at the scale of this, whatever the pain for individual people, we must remember that even at its peak, uh, manufacturing employment was well under 20% of the US workforce and has declined a lot since then. Um, and even at its peak, um, Otto Dorn and Hansen come up with an estimate of additional manufacturing jobs lost by the uh, China shock. And there's various debates as to whether that's an overestimate and whether you're, that takes into account offsetting job creation. But let's take that number at face value. That's 2 million jobs over a 15-year period. 2 million jobs divided by 15 years is, what is that, 150,000, 160,000 jobs a year in a workforce that is now currently 160 million. So a tenth of a percent per year of the total US workforce. And meanwhile, millions, tens of millions of people every year lose their jobs either voluntarily or through churn of companies. So the idea that the manufacturing tail should wag the economic dog, even as a social justice matter, strikes me as very odd. And then you can say, well, there were good jobs in manufacturing for women and people of color. Well, for a period there were, but once manufacturing started contracting, largely because of the seniority rules at place in these unionized workforces, um, African Americans, Latino Americans, and women reduced their share of the manufacturing workforce as the manufacturing workforce shrunk. They were the first to go. Again, it's not universal, but if you look at the percentage of manufacturing workers who were black or Latino or female, over time, it goes down. Moreover, it goes down even as the number of Latino Americans rises in this economy, and even as the number of Latino Americans as a share of workers who are less than high school educated or high school educated goes up. We also have this question of why in the US do we, is it such an issue? You know, people will say, well, it's because Germany and Japan cheated like China before them and they maintained their, their manufacturing. Well, actually that's not even true either. Um, as my colleague Robert Lawrence has documented, as others have pointed out, um, as a percentage of the workforce in these countries, there's essentially the same slope decline of manufacturing working in the economy 
for Germany and Japan, even though they're running huge manufacturing trade surpluses over this period, even though Germany is exporting huge amounts to China for much of the so-called China shock period. I, last time I testified before Congress, before a congressional committee, I put together just because I knew there was a person from, a representative from Ohio who has been trying to protect industry since the late 60s, um, who's, who believes that any decline in manufacturing employment since 1968 must be the result of cheating by foreigners. Anyway, so I, I did a comparison of Nordrhein-Westfalen, uh, which is the industrial heartland of Germany and is basically their equivalent of Ohio. And despite all the trade surpluses, Nordrhein-Westfalen lost more jobs in manufacturing proportionally than Ohio did. Why do I go through so much on manufacturing? And I'll stop there in one minute. Um, I go so much through manufacturing because clearly this becomes the macho image that Joe Biden, a self-professed car guy, gets into. Robert Lighthizer and Donald Trump, who never met a service export that they cared about, only about things that they can drop on their feet. There's just this imagery of steel and cars, all these macho things. And it's just such a shame when these people can't live in exactly the same place they always did and do exactly the same job they always did. Whereas, of course, by the millions, Americans, particularly female Americans, particularly people of color, but all kinds of Americans have been moving around the country, have been changing jobs, and don't have the macho advertising that gets the politicians in their hearts. And so this is why I think we have to be realistic in both international comparison and in distributional terms about manufacturing and get rid of the nostalgia for it. Because once you do that, then the political lobby for protectionism has lost its best red flag waving argument, both left and right. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. You're next, Susan. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Scott, uh, Ryan, and, uh, and Adam for setting me up <laughs> on, this, on this debate. But I'm gonna spend my introductory remarks really focusing on how we got here. What were the underlying sources of uh, the erosion for free trade? And I don't think anybody on this stage, um, I'm sure nobody on this stage, uh, uh, questions the notion that uh, open, openness to trade uh, on balance, at least, uh, generally results in good things and is efficient. But how did we get here? Okay, um, these are levels of manufacturing employment since, uh, since World War II, okay? World War II to the, to the present, what you can see is that manufacturing employment rose at first, then it bounced along, it's highly cyclical. Uh, but we get to roughly 1998 and it drops off a cliff. Between 2000 and 2007, both business cycle peaks U.S. manufacturing employment lost 3.0 million jobs or 20% of its employment base. This is the first time in U.S. history that manufacturing employment did not recover or at least largely recover following a recession. It is unprecedented and it was precipitous. 
Many people refer, refer to this as the employment collapse in manufacturing. We get to the uh, Great Recession in uh, 2008. Manufacturing employment is hard hit again. Um, there has been some recovery, but on net, uh, manufacturing is down. Manufacturing employment is down by about 5 million jobs or 28% since 2000. It's also worth uh, bearing in mind that there, much of manufacturing employment is contracted out, or it is, uh, there's a lot of services input. So this isn't counting. If you look at the input output tables, roughly double these numbers in terms of their impacts. Okay. So uh, that's where we were. It's uh, misleading to look at employment shares, I will argue. Look at the levels. Other countries, for the most part, except for perhaps the UK, did not experience this precipitous decline in such a short period of time. Okay. So what were the initial prevailing views? They largely uh, matched what Adam just said. Um, but particularly, um, lots of people uh, uh, pointed to uh, statistics, um, uh, official statistics on manufacturing. The graph below shows, compares real GDP in manufacturing to that in private sector. And what you can see is, is that uh, manufacturing employment, uh, sorry, manufacturing GDP output was largely tracking that of the private sector. So it appeared to be quite healthy. Okay? At the same time, productivity measurement measured was much higher. So many people took these descriptive data and said that the job losses uh, were largely caused by productivity growth in the form of automation. There was some acknowledgement of trade during this period, but it was largely uh, automation. Workers were simply, as it was often said, victims of their own success. My, let's see. My contribution, along with that of Rob Atkinson, who, who independently was making this point a decade ago, um, was to point out that one industry computer and electronic products was driving the apparent robust output and productivity growth in manufacturing. If you take out computers, electronic products, this is basically, think, computers and semiconductors. Um, manufacturing GDP growth was under half. It was only 45% of private sector GDP growth from 1979 to 2000. It was less than a quarter. From 2000 to 2019, manufacturing output was actually slightly lower in 2019 than in 2007. Manufacturing productivity, as uh, Martin Bailey, Barry Bosworth of Brookings Institute have uh, pointed out in a, um, uh, an academic article, uh, shown that manufacturing productivity was no higher than aggregate productivity without computers and semiconductors. So this paints a picture where it wasn't doing so great. Okay, we were, we were sort of misled on this. Sorry. So, I want to just spend uh, 30 seconds talking about, well, well, what was happening in the superstar industry, computers and semiconductors? It's important to note that this sector, one sector, accounts for less than 15%, the entire post-war period of manufacturing GDP. So it was, but it was driving the growth of output and productivity. What was going on there? Well, it just reflects a statistical adjustment for the very uh, genuine rapid advances in product, product quality that were happening. Uh, in computers and electronic products, and by extension in all of manufacturing, the robust growth resulted from 
product improvements, not process improvements, not from, from automation. Despite, moreover, despite and somewhat ironically driving the apparent robust uh, domestic manufacturing output, the locus of production was moving to Asia. We all know that, and employment losses in computer and related industries reflect the shifting global locus of production. So what do we get from that? There's no prima facie case here that, uh, uh, that you know, automation was driving or largely responsible for these uh, employment, uh, the employment collapse during this period. So let's turn very briefly to the research evidence that has pointed to large effects of trade had on manufacturing employment from the high value of the dollar during this period, the surge of imports, multinational offshoring to production, and the lack of investment in this country. It was also has been uh, shown uh, quite compellingly that trade caused large economic disruptions in uh, various regions in the country. It also has uh, resulted in, in uh, lower levels of uh, patenting and, and innovation. On the other hand, uh, the uh, rigorous research has failed to find a causal link between technology investment and, and, and employment declines during this, this period when we lost so much employment. In a nutshell, there is absolutely no evidence that a technology shock um, uh, have, could have caused the sharp employment decline, a 20% decline in employment in a seven-year period. So we go to uh, you know, the, the 2016 election. Uh, interestingly, somebody on the, on, you know, the Republican, uh, Donald Trump and Dan, uh, Bernie Sanders on, on the left, is arguing that uh, losses, these losses reflect trade policy. It took quite a long time for us to have a national debate on, about this. Um, no matter what you think about their politics or policies, they were fundamentally correct. And the research evidence supports it. They were fundamentally correct to point to trade as the proximate cause of these very large declines. Um, and we should take it as no surprise that there has been a political backlash um, against, uh, towards protectionism and against free trade. The manufacturing employment collapse in the early 2000s, I know that Adam was dismissing it as some you know, white blue collar worker thing and so forth, lots of, lots of uh, people <laughs> are employed in manufacturing. But you've got to appreciate that it was econ both economically and politically destabilizing. If you don't want it, to, to lead in this direction, you can't have that big of a shock hit the country. Um, of course, the supply chain disruptions during the pandemic underscored US vulnerabilities to trade and reinforce protectionist measures. Um, but the move, as Adam has pointed out, was long in place before this happened. So I'm just gonna close um, with a couple of policy considerations as we move forward and talk about the future. Um, as I started off by saying, uh, I think most of us believe that uh, trade expansion generally is beneficial on net for the country, but we have to also recognize that, that it's not always. And that's very rigorously theoretically demonstrated, okay? Um, um, recent theoretical work on this area has pointed to circumstances in which trade can lead to significant loss of comparative advantage, uh, what the trade uh, theorists call uh, terms of trade, 
uh, in high-tech sectors. What we need to do uh, when we think about trade policy is to consider an optimal policy when our trading partners behave as mercantilists. Okay, we can't be the only, only ones out there uh, uh, promoting free trade. Um, I agree that it can lead to a spiral, but we need to think about controlling this. I also want to say, and this was dismissed in the earlier remarks, but the U.S. actually needs a, a, a healthy manufacturing sector to sustain innovation and a healthy economy, and also obviously, I think quite obviously, for national security reasons. Um, you often hear it said, well, we're just going to become a, a services economy. But that's a false dichotomy. Okay, many services are embedded, including these uh, IT services are embedded in products. The two are linked. Moreover, um, manufacturing and research and development often need to be co-located. So we think that we can be brilliant here and innovate like crazy, but very often the R&D follows manufacturing. Concern over the loss of, uh, of manufacturing in this country um, led to uh, MIT, arguably the uh, nation's uh, premier engineering school, to run a multi-year study uh, about this. And their conclusion was basically that the loss of the manufacturing, what they call ecosystem, is already undermining our country's ability to innovate. So thank you, and I'll stop there. Thank you, Susan. Arvin. Thank you. Thanks from me also to Scott Ryan, Cato Institute. Um, so I don't work so much in the United States, but more globally and particularly in the developing countries. Um, so I just want to make two or three points in the opening sure. uh, five minutes that you have given us, Scott. Um, first, I think, you know, at a very broad level, um, so truth in advertising, I'm an eternal optimist, and, and that's my first remark that's uh, uh, following from that. Um, there's a lot of this malaise on free trade, and uh, many of you must have seen uh, one of these very recent issues. Um, uh, in The Economist, which says how to re-globalize. And, and that really got me to thinking that, you know, have we really de-globalized so that we need to re-globalize? Certainly, we are all aware that, you know, certain uh, um, U.S.-China trade war happened. Uh, we also have had recently uh, the, the sanctions on Russia and so forth. But has trade really de-globalized? And at least at the aggregate level and even at this, uh, some of the specific country levels, when I look at it, I don't see that, you know, there has been a major uh, deglobalization. Uh, certainly not in trade. Uh, when China kind of in a big way began to enter the global trade, and can track it back to the 1980s and 1990s as well, but really the big kind of trade expansion of China is in the 2000s. So when China, you know, if you go back, look at what was global trade like in the year 2000, roughly about $6 trillion merchandise. Today, the latest figure we have for is 2021, uh, 22 billion, uh, 22 trillion dollars, so 6.5 trillion to 22 trillion dollars. And this, by the way, uh, is about three trillion dollars higher than the pre-COVID peak, uh, which was 19 trillion in 2018. 
So at least for the countries in general, as far as I see, uh, that uh, do want to flourish and, and take advantage uh, of uh, export-led growth, there's plenty of trade going on. And in fact, you know, it's not so easy to stop uh, 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 from trading those who actually want to trade. Uh, uh, you know, the exporters who are determined penetrate the markets, importers who actually want the goods, they manage to find ways to do it. I mean, we all coped with the, the difficulties of buying and s selling goods during COVID, but we did all that. Uh, and, and all the predictions that had been made about you know, the decline in uh, foreign trade uh, in, uh, during COVID actually turned out to be all overestimates. It was very, sh uh, it was smaller, smaller, much smaller than what happened during the global financial crisis. Uh, and it picked up very quickly back. Uh, it rose up to the, to the pre-COVID levels very, very quickly. If you look at the countries, uh, Vietnam, you know, which has been persistently opening its economy uh, over the last several years, uh, trade figures you know, from in 2010, about $72 billion worth of exports. 2021, $336 billion. Uh, now, some of it may be, you know, diversion from China to Vietnam to other countries and all, uh, especially the United States, but still, you know, and, and certainly, you know, this, uh, this diversion would start only after, two, you know, after the U.S. sanctions on China. Um, small country like, much smaller and poorer country like Bangladesh, you know, from $19 billion in 2010 to $44 billion in 2011. China itself, uh, uh, again, 1.6 trillion in 2010 to 3.4 trillion. So I think, you know, though some bit of recidivism has happened uh, in trade policy in some major countries, on the other hand, globally, I personally think that, you know, free trade is very much alive. And if anything, uh, going by the numbers today, uh, uh, we, we are seeing a lot more trade act actually happening exposed than it was happening, say, even 10 years ago. So, so I generally remain optimistic. Uh, what has not really happened is that the free traders and so led actually Cato Institute is at the forefront now here. Uh, we are all talking about it, but the free traders themselves actually have been somewhat absent uh, from, uh, from uh, defending it. Uh, my second point, uh, uh, which, is, which is, and, and that will be my sec uh, last point uh, uh, that I want to make is that, again, th there is this whole issue about the industrial policy uh, that, uh, uh, and, and the, the, we continue to kind of go back to the Koreas, Taiwans, uh, uh, and all during the 60s and 70s, and even now to some degree to China. Um, uh, the, the simple point really is that, you know, governments, government's nature is to intervene. So whether a country doing, is doing badly or it is doing well, governments are always intervening. Uh, uh, and and, and it, it really takes a, a lot of uh, uh, um, education to, to, uh, to, to educate the governments into withdrawing from interventions. So, so even when they have succeeded by withdrawing interventions, they go back to interventions. And, and the, my favorite example is South Korea. You know, to 1963 to 1973, there was a whole decade when Korea had very neutral policies towards foreign trade. Uh, 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 no industrial policy whatsoever. It grew 9 to 10%. 
and massive movement out of agriculture of the workforce into industry and services. Uh, uh, real wages rising about nine to 10%. Uh, and then exports as a proportion of GDP went up from like 5% to something closer to 25%. Correspondingly, of course, imports rose as well. And you know, that is the only reason. I mean, you export more so that you can import more. Uh, that's the only reason to export. Uh, and, and of course, you know, so imports also expanded and then the government steps in and thinks that, oh gee, you know, there are all these goods that we are importing, we can produce them at home. And that is where, you know, the heavy and chemical industry drive started in 1973. But if you look at the evidence, uh, 73 to 82 decade, growth rate actually declined by two percentage points in South Korea. Uh, from about 9 to 10, it went down to about 6.9%. Uh, and, and it began to then, you know, towards the uh, uh, end of the 1970s, it began to withdraw actually from this uh, uh, industrial targeting. And lo and behold, of course, the decade that followed uh, did see the growth rate actually shift again back to about 9, nine to 10%. Um, Another way to look at it is that, you know, if you look at those contemporary episodes of South Korea, Taiwan, uh, uh, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, if you wish, um, when people say that, well, you know, South Korea really intervened and was so successful, uh, even in the 70s and, and early 80s, um, if you look at the countries that intervened less, uh, so everybody intervened. I mean, Singapore also intervened and Taiwan also intervened, but Singapore and Taiwan intervened a lot less and Hong Kong was perhaps the one which is closest to laissez-faire. But all those three countries did a lot better than South Korea. So, so the claims of industrial policy actually succeeding uh, are simply based on this association. Uh, we on the free trade side actually are uh, always held to a very high proof of, uh, a very high standard of proof that, you know, is there causation and I think, you know, on this side, we have done a lot of work, but is there any proof at all where that you can show that the, that the rising protection uh, or high levels of protection actually cause growths to happen faster? I don't think anybody has even tried to show that even as a correlation, let alone as a causation. So we, you know, on the free trade side, actually have done a lot of work showing the causation. I know there's a plenty of evidence, particularly in the last uh, 10 years or so, which uh, uh, addresses this issue of causation as well. Uh, on the other side, I see nothing that is there uh, which, which shows any causation. So right, stop there. Thank you, Arv. Uh, so before I open it up to audience uh, questions, I'm gonna take the moderator's prerogative and ask one question that I'd like all of the panelists to discuss, because I think all three hit on something here. Um, that I think it's really important. I want to avoid for now the methodological debates and stick more on the trade policy debate. Uh, Susan, you mentioned the failed trade policy. Adam, you mentioned in your foreign affairs piece and elsewhere about uh, whether trade policy can really uh, revive manufacturing employment and the rest. Um, and I wanted you to talk more about the role of trade policy in causing manufacturing employment decline. So not trade flows, but trade policy, uh, and the ability of trade policy to somehow fix what's ailing manufacturing the economy. Let's just assume there is some economic problem here. Because but before I go over, I, again, I'll, I'll take a, a, a few points. Um, first, uh, 
even if you look at the China shock papers, for example, they say that the majority of China's export competitiveness came not from its entry into the World Trade Organization or permanent normal trade relations, but because China was becoming more market-oriented, lowered its own trade barriers, and uh, was just becoming uh, a, a better place to do and operate manufacturing business. Meanwhile, the United States, uh, as we at Cato love to note, uh, is not some free trade angel, right? Uh, and I'm not even talking about the Jones Act or the sugar quotas. We can talk about anti-dumping duties. We can talk about steel tariffs, plenty of subsidies, and the rest throughout the last few decades. Um, Yet, and I, oh, and I should add that every presidential candidate, most members of Congress have promised for decades to bring back manufacturing jobs to places like Youngstown, Ohio, and the rest, right? And it just hasn't worked. Um, you look at the China shock papers and others, and they talk less about trade policy failure and more about adjustment policy, right? Why didn't workers adjust after these trade shocks? And as Adam and Arvin have mentioned, foreign country experiences don't give us a ton of hope in somehow uh, having a massive reshoring program or uh, something like that. Again, using trade policy. Um, heck, China over the last few years has lost almost 20 million manufacturing jobs, give or take. Uh, you know, the, again, these kind of global seismic things going on. So with that very leading question, I'd like to get your views on to what extent really was it trade policy causing these problems um, as opposed to other U.S. policies, as opposed to global macroeconomic phenomena, and similarly, how much can trade policy really fix any of these things? So um, please you know, feel free to chime in. <laughs> let me uh, let, let me start off. Um, when, when I said failed trade policy, I was I was uh, 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 talking about the lines of, of uh, Donald Trump and, and Bernie Sanders oh, in that okay. campaign. Um, I want to make a, a hit on a big point that I think is often lost, and that is there was a very large decline, 20% seven years, okay? That hit a lot of communities hard, and there's a lot of resentment. It wasn't just white males. Um, and what we know from lots of research in on these sorts of things with job losses, this is my area of research, is that you know communities can absorb small losses. But you get to a certain level, and it creates a downward spiral. And it could take a generation to recover. We, uh, uh, you know, uh, Adam's predecessor, Fred Bergsten, was writing, uh, complaining quite a lot during this period about currency manipulation. Was there some sort an exporting of unemployment? Was there something, um, you're the expert on trade policy, that we could have done? Was there a hitting back and a resistance? You know, China pegged its, uh, it, its, its currency to a very favorable exchange rate. If you're, what you're trying to do is to uh, uh, em employ a lot of unemployed people in China, that um, uh, persisted for many years, right? That should have been addressed earlier. In trade policy, we, the, the, the key is not to stop globalization. Um, it is to avoid very large, sudden, disruptive shocks that are quite destabilizing, both economically and politically. 
So one, one point I'd like to make is that after all, the adjustment does happen. I mean, I'm not so familiar, as I said, I don't study the United States, but certainly I think of Pittsburgh. Yeah. It used to be a steel town, and now it's home to health industry. And so adjustment has happened, and, and maybe, you know, in other communities and in other states also, this adjustment will happen. Um, so I think that's, that's a thought that comes to me. No, no, in Pittsburgh it did happen, and in the neighboring towns it didn't. Um, and, and, and yeah, it, it, it varies. It it's often depends on whether there's but, a big university there in life. But Sorry, no, Adam, go ahead before I... Yeah, um, so just before I reply directly, I just want to point out, in Susan's presentation and my presentation, I think Arvind's presentation was terrific and his reference to South Korea's example, I think it's, is exactly right. In Susan's presentation, my presentation, what I want to point out is we were mostly talking past each other, which I think was right. We chose to do different things. She was talking about the scale of the manufacturing job losses, and I was talking about why we shouldn't care. And then she, in her, her last slide, discussed some reasons why we should care, and at some point, I can give my views on why I don't think those reasons either are relevant or are well supported. But I want to now, returning to Scott's question, um, I want to agree very strongly with Susan that I think currency manipulation was the major problem. Um, and I think that's not trade policy per se, but it is the key policy. And she, I appreciate her citing my colleague, Fred Bergston, but also colleagues at Peterson, Joe Gagnon, Morris Goldstein, Nick Lardy, and even I wrote about the problems of currency manipulation and took to task repeated American administrations, both Bush and Obama administrations, who basically said, no, the State Department's right, we can't make a fuss over this. And so I completely agree with her. I think that that is a major problem. Now, I think it also, as we're seeing right now, and if you remember the graph Susan showed of actual manufacturing employment, you know, it picks back up the last couple of years. And this has happened not just because there was a recovery from COVID, which of course we all would expect, but because of various things, including industrial policy, including competitiveness, clear things. But this has happened while the dollar has been strengthening. So I, I don't want to say the dollar is everything, and I know Susan doesn't, but the scale and duration of Chinese currency manipulation in the early 2000s was to me a, a major, when we talk about mercantilism, that's the one that counted more than anything else. And I, I just wanna emphasize that we're in agreement on that. The final point is I wanna quote what Arvin just said, adjustment does happen. And that was kind of, that's a much pithier and more pointed way of saying what I was trying to say in, in my initial remarks. There's a certain amount of adjustment that a market economy or even a partial market economy like the US goes through. And that that adjustment had been disproportionately borne by groups other than the manufacturing sector employees. And the fact that the manufacturing sector employees now bear a larger share of the adjustment to me is not prima facie a problem. What is the issue, and I think Susan raises and others have raised, is how much you want to temper the forces of adjustment based on geographic concentration. I think that's a legitimate discussion to have. I'm at the extreme end of thinking if Pittsburgh thrives while 
the local towns around Pittsburgh decline. I'm, you know, I'd like to do something for those towns, but I'm actually not so sure that I want to do much for those towns because people can move. Um, I also think that there are other possibilities, and I've written about this, and many other people have written about this. You know, if we had better child care policy in this country, if we had better health care policy in this country, then people might not be so afraid to move because you're not leaving where your family or your network is may not be so dangerous for you if we had a better universal safety net. You don't have to rely on the fact that your sister is there and so you, have, you can't afford daycare and so you park your kids with your sister. I mean, there's a lot here to discuss and there's a lot of views other than mine, but I, do, I would like us to focus more on not so much failed trade policies, the failed exchange rate policy specifically vis-a-vis -vis China and the underprovision or the lack of uniformity in certain basic social services that make people more tied to their local areas than they might otherwise be. Okay, let's, uh, I'm gonna go to a question on Facebook real quick, and then uh, if we still have some time, we'll, we'll go to the audience for sure. Um, so the first one comes from Dave. It says, um, isn't looking at manufacturing output, uh, putting the cart before the horse, isn't manufacturing declining because of relative demand for manufacturing, that, because relative demand for manufacturing falls as we get richer. So I think this is a point that one of Adam's colleagues has made that simply as we get rich, we tend to, we tend to consume fewer goods and more services, and that can fuel a lot of the supposed decline of manufacturing. So I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that question. Um, all I'll say is the colleague Scott kindly refers to is Robert Lawrence at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, he'll be he is publishing with us a monograph on this issue of what's really behind the manufacturing decline and what happened with jobs, and it'll be out in the first quarter of 2023. Yes. Add, add to that, you see, also over time, it, it, there is the trend of, you know, labor intensity of manufacturing declining. So, so on the one hand, you know, this declining labor intensity uh, in manufacturing in particular, and on the other hand, you have the rising incomes, which through the income elasticity effect are pushing the demand towards services. So the manufacturing is demand is not expanding as rapidly right. as in, with incomes, but at the same time, employment per unit of manufacturing is also declining. And that's sort of, you know, in aggregate, actually, there is a decline in the employment in manufacturing. So I'll just say that there, there are undoubtedly lots of reasons why, uh, when I showed that graph taking out, uh, you know, somewhat hard to interpret, uh, 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 trends in, in, in uh, computers and semiconductors because of statistical adjustments, that it was, uh, growth was much lower. And there, there are likely many factors. One is the one that, that um, uh, the ones that were just mentioned, that uh, you know, there's a relative increase in, in purchase services. Um, another is, is that uh, 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 things were shifting overseas. That's actually not a problem. We tend to think that as goods commoditize, uh, you know, they, they will naturally shift to other countries. Yep. That's fine. We didn't have this political backlash when adjustments occurred relatively slowly. It's only when they hit uh, uh, very hard. And then, of course, there is, uh, uh, on top of all of that, there are, is uh, a, a backline of, of automation going on. 
So, uh, but, but that's not causing a uh, decline in, in output. That's, that's the employment. I, I'm, I just want to put down a marker. Um, those of you who are interested can pursue it. There is a difference of opinion on how direct the mapping is between uh, rate of job loss and people's voting for anti-globalization or populist, broader populist positions. There are papers, including one that was published in Proceedings, National Academy of Sciences, more recent papers by Carolyn Freund and Marcus Nolan, among others, who show that if you put in some ideological factors like concerns about crime or race or security, that basically in the regression absorbs most of the impact of the local employment conditions. This isn't settled, but it's just Susan has twice asserted as fact that the uh, populist swing is directly attributable to unemployment, localized unemployment. That's actually not a proven fact. Okay. Audience. Uh, Mark Lerner, is there a national security interest here? So, for example, if all semiconductors are made in China and China decides they're not going to ship to the U.S. or I work in healthcare during a Puerto Rico flood, a lot of medicines are made in Puerto Rico. We couldn't get basic things like IV bags. So is there a national interest in having things made here? Yes, absolutely. And we see, are seeing that now in the case of Europe, heavily dependent on Russian oil. Anyone, anyone else? Uh, no, I mean, some of the little things will happen. Uh, uh, countries just started producing their own masks and their own PPEs, et cetera. And, and that's also triggered by the fact that, you know, uh, in, in times of uh, pandemic, these things disappear, disappear from the global marketplace. I think... The problem isn't that such an exception exists. Adam Smith, even in the Wealth of Nations, has, I forget exactly where, I'm sure there are people in this room who know where, but there's a half a chapter in which he talks about national security needs. But the tendency, as with all good things in Washington, is them to be taken to extremes. So the issue isn't should we stockpile certain things or have capacity, it's how do we draw the line. and. You know, you can fantasize, as I sometimes do in my spare time, about a wonderful technocratic process. And, and that, of course, would probably have its own failings of multiple types. But, you know, I mean, so just let me use the example of steel. Steel is not semiconductor. Steel is not IV bags. And again, I'm not suggesting any of my colleagues are, are on this side. But, you know, the Trump administration invoked national security for steel. Yeah. And according to the Defense Department's own publications, you need roughly 4% of US steel production capacity to, to fulfill the Defense Department's needs. Let's say we go on a warfare building binge to counter China, maybe we need 8%. Um, does that mean we should cut out Canada with tariffs when effectively they're part of our industrial base as the Pentagon? Again, people in this room, certainly the people in this panel, we all recognize that. I'm just using it as an example that we can all agree we need some semiconductors. We can all agree it really was a cheat and a lie to call steel a national security issue. And then the question is, how do we create a process that somehow gets us somewhere in between? 
Yeah, and unfortunately, we're out of, oh, we can do one more question? Good, I'll just add. The other thing is you have to balance, uh, you need a diversity of supply, right? Because right. you have the risk of having too much of your eggs in the domestic basket, right. and then you end up with a baby formula crisis because 98% of all baby formula consumed here was made here. One factory goes down, and the next thing you know, shelves are empty for, now we're going on eight months. So you, the best approach, we. Cato, at least, think is an open and flexible system and a diversified supply base. So, one last question in the corner. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm curious. What do you? What is there a solution though for this unabsorbed labor? It sounds like that's going to continue in the manufacturing sector. I mean, job retraining and all that doesn't really work. What do you think of universal basic income and some of those other types of concepts? Maybe I'll go first, so others can have the last word. Um, I talk about this a little bit in my foreign affairs piece and some other places. Uh, the record of retraining isn't great, but there are other economies that spend a lot more on specific kinds of occupational retraining and more on matching people with jobs. Denmark is always the stellar example, but there are others. And the U.S. spends, depending on how you count it, between a fifth and a tenth of what they do as a share of GDP on this. So I think there is room to improve that. Um, AEI had, I think, a very nice, well-balanced, very broad study about trade retraining and adjustment um, that came out about a year and a half ago. Um, but the other thing, just to say, along with what I said earlier, that there are interconnections that you can provide things that make it easier for people to be mobile. Um, Others at Cato have written a lot about NIMBY issues, real estate issues, life, occupational licensing issues between states. There are things you can do that won't solve every problem, but can make it easier for people to move to where opportunity is or to afford housing where opportunity is or to transport their skills even within the US. Um, so I mean, there are things we can do to, to make it better. I'd actually second that very much, and, and I mean, I study India, and, and where we end up doing exactly the opposite. You see, India is at a different level of development, and what it, it really needs is to move enormous amount of its workforce out of agriculture into industry and services. But what does politics lead to? That there are a lot of poor people there, I want to do good for them, and therefore, I'm going to create this, you know, so we have an employment guarantee scheme which provides for every household one person getting 100 days of guaranteed employment. Similar other schemes uh, don't move from there to here, but I will bring the amenities to you from the tax dollars or tax rupees uh, of the others in the village, right? And, and that impedes the adjustment. You know, it is true that a lot of the poor people in the short run, immediate run, need help, and, and that help in the form of cash transfers, et cetera, is welcome. But policies that end up actually tying them to where they are do exactly the opposite. You know, the adjustment is actually prevented. And so I sort of have a very different uh, uh, example there uh, uh, that, that, you know, you actually want to facil facilitate the movement of the people uh, where better paid jobs uh, are available or can be created. So I just want to say that we, uh, while mobility is good and encouraging that is fine, uh, you know, social networks that people develop are really important. 
And uh, you don't want to completely disrupt that and just give people uh, money for bus tickets to move, go someplace else. Um, the, uh, I want to call out in just a, a 30 seconds a, a proposal that was actually adopted as part of the uh, put forward by my colleague Tim Bardick at the Upjohn Institute uh, that was adopted as part of the CHIPS Act. It's a pilot program that specifically targets um, uh, distressed communities and tries to improve conditions uh, there. Uh, largely, he advocates through infrastructure, training, and the like. And, uh, but, but I absolutely agree with uh, you know, some of the points that, that Adam made, that you have to be careful about politics getting you know, into things, and there can be inefficiencies. You want to uh, very rigorously evaluate these things. But yes, there is also scope for um, sound economic de uh, development policy, much as we did with the Tennessee Valley uh, Authority and uh, Appalachia in the past, that were you know, generally agreed to be quite effective uh, today because some communities were very much left behind. Thank you. So uh, I'll just close with one uh, plug. We actually have a, I have a book coming out in, a, about, uh, in a few weeks on uh, all sorts of policies that can help American workers, particularly with adjustment on licensing, housing, criminal justice, uh, you name it. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but back to the panel. Thank you so much for a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you.